0: Warning! Today's podcast episode contains sex and ghosts. Parachutes not included. Podcast episode number 86 for January 12th, 2010. Teo Gilberto and the 27 Ghosts by Ben Francisco.
1: Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky. My husband is a geologist, but his passion is paleontology. He wooed me with tales of dinosaurs and strange creatures from the Cambrian, loaded down with odd numbers of eyes and vacuum mouths. In between discussions of extinct animals, he also showed me the wonders of modern zoology. There are many strange creatures that live with us on this globe. People know about some of them, like the platypus. Others, like the man-killing, mango-devouring relatives of the ostrich called the cassowary, are unfamiliar to most Americans— but a brief investigation into the creatures living on this planet will reveal many weird and wonderful life forms that are stranger than the oddest science fictional alien. Even ordinary creatures can be wondrously strange. I've recently found a really amazing free video series on the internet that grinds this home. These two minute films, sponsored by the Sundance Channel and starring Isabella Rossellini, are called Green Porno. That's right, Green Porno. Ever wondered how spiders do it? Flies? Anglerfish? Barnacles? Limpets do it sequentially, apparently. Anchovies do it in groups. Praying mantises do it headless. Well, the males do, anyway. I suppose this series is explicit. I mean, they use all the proper anatomical words, and sometimes there are pictures. But mostly these are too strange to seem like they're rated X. I mean, you have to be kind of a special person to be turned on by cardboard exoskeletons. If you're wondering or perhaps dreading how green porno relates to today's story, then don't worry, it doesn't. I just wanted to plug these remarkably interesting videos. We fantasy and science fiction fans are often intrigued by the bizarre, and sometimes we need look no further than our own biosphere. The first three seasons of Green Porno are available on the Sundance Channel website at sundancechannel.com slash greenporno. The site starts out auto-playing a commercial for season three, but I recommend switching it off and starting with the first episode of season one. Today's story is Tio Gilberto and the 27 Ghosts by Ben Francisco. Ben Francisco's stories range from magic realism to space opera, and have been known to feature oversexed ghosts, epidemics of phosphorescence, zombie musicals, and pantheistic vampire aliens who reproduce like moss. His work has been published in Realms of Fantasy, Fantasy, and Jack Dan's Dreaming Again anthology. Readers can visit his blog at benfrancisco.net. Enjoy the story!
2: Tio Gilberto and the 27 Ghosts by Ben Francisco New York City is getting me down. The concrete is too hard, and the summer's too hot. There are lots of guys, but none of them work out because they're too pretentious. Like in the poem with the guy and the albatross and water everywhere, but you can't drink any of it because of the salt. If New York were a body of water, it would have lots and lots of salt. It's the worst in the comedy clubs when I do my stand-up routine. New Yorkers hold back their laughter like they're saving it up for the afterlife. I get the summer off from school and I was going to stay with my parents in the Bronx like usual, but then I realized I'm an adult now and can do whatever I want. I'll go someplace that people don't take themselves so seriously, where the laughs and smiles aren't so expensive. I'll spend the summer in San Francisco with my uncle Gilberto at his haunted house. Gilberto can't meet me at the airport because of some excuse about the moisture in the air and the aches in his back. So I have to find my way to the Bart on my own, and then walk from the station, a heavy duffel bag on each shoulder, the straps digging into my skin. Gilberto's building is as big as my memory of it. Five stories high, a run down warehouse refurbished in a coat of bright purple paint, like an old woman dressed up for a night on the town. Before I can even ring, Uncle Gilberto opens the door and gives me a big hug and a kiss that smells of gin and menthol cigarettes. His dog, Ganymede, barks and snuggles his head between my legs. The cat eyes me suspiciously from the next room. From behind me, someone helps me slip off my jacket. I look over my shoulder, but nobody's there. Who's that, I ask my uncle. That's Daniel, he says. Hey, Daniel, I say. Been a while. Roberto shakes a finger at the air behind me. No, you cannot also take his shirt. I told you to behave. Uncle Gil throws both hands into the air. Dios mio, what have I done? Bringing my innocent nephew into a house with twenty-seven horny ghosts. Que barbaridad. You tell me right away if any of them try anything. ¿Me this, James? I'm twenty-one, Uncle Gil. I'm not so innocent anymore. Gil's hands go up towards the sky again. Por favor. You kids think you invented the debauchery. But long before you were born, they closed down the sex clubs and put up a parking lot. Uncle Gil invites me to play Monopoly with him and a few of the ghosts. They're all picky about what piece they get to use, so I get stuck with a wheelbarrow. At first it's fun to watch the pieces and the dice move by themselves, the money passing between invisible hands. But it's hard to keep track of who has what properties when you can't see the other players. And Uncle Gil has to translate for me when the ghosts tell me how much the rent is. Only Gilberto can see and hear them. Ghosts can only be seen by the people they haunt. The doorbell rings, and Gilberto opens the door to a young Asian guy with two brown paper bags of groceries in each arm and more on the floor beside him. Gilberto sets them down in the hallway by the door, then gives the delivery man a generous tip and a flirtatious rub on the shoulder. As soon as Uncle Gil closes the door, the grocery bags lift themselves into the air and parade into the kitchen. I follow them and watch as the bags are unpacked in a flurry of floating cans, fruits, and meats. While the ghosts are putting away the food... Gilberto comes over to me and brushes his fingers through my hair. It makes me so happy that you are here for all the summer, he says. Finally, we'll have a new player from the Monopoly in the hearts, and you can help out with the chopping too. When he says shopping, it sounds like chopping. Uncle Gil is okay, but it makes me want to groan, the thought of an entire summer of shopping cart pushing and board games with finicky ghosts. Sure, I say, we should definitely hang out, you know, when I'm not at the restaurant or working on my act. The ghosts have a party at least twice a week. They gather around the piano and sing Broadway show tunes. Gil's voice and the piano are all I hear. Late at night, they pull their favorite props out of the trunk, and the piano room is animated by top hats, black canes with white tips, and red feather boas flopping about the air in unison. When they're happy, they sing the finale from Chorus Line, that one that starts, One singular sensation, every little step she takes. When they're sad, they sing Another Suitcase in Another Hall, from Evita. I hear a lot more suitcases than singular sensations. I'm glad I'm a heavy sleeper. Gilberto is sitting in his armchair with a glass of gin in his hand when I ask him if he wants to go out to the clean break bar and laundromat for their open mic night. Gil is so surprised he coughs a bit mid-sip, as if his pipes are getting crossed. Now they are having bars in laundromats, he says. I am so outside the loop. No, I am too old for the clubs and the comedy. Oh, come on, Tio, I say. In that moment, I make it my mission to get him out of the house before the end of the summer. You're only 54. Maybe you'll meet somebody. This makes him laugh. Then he looks over his shoulder with a guilty frown. Lo sé, Tomás, lo sé, he says to the air behind him. No, he says to me, shaking his head, staring into his lap. You go on without me. The gin bottle floats from the liquor cabinet to the coffee table to freshen up Gilberto's drink. The far wall of the clean break is lined with washing machines and dryers and stacks of two. They were in the background while musicians, comedians, and poets take the stage for a maximum of seven minutes each. I grab a beer and sign up with the goth chick at the bar, and halfway through the night I'm called to the stage. I do my comedy routine about the funniest deaths in history. Nero, Catherine the Great... It takes me a couple minutes to warm up the exhausted audience, but once I do, I have them rolling. There's a young white guy with a ponytail almost falling over with laughter as he folds a stack of blue jeans behind the counter of the laundromat. He's wearing a snug t-shirt that says, Homosexuals are so gay. I find this funny, and also cute. After my seven minutes, I want to go up to him and start a conversation, but I haven't got the nerve. Next time, I'll bring my laundry. When I hand the cute long-haired guy my sack of clothes, the conversation will flow naturally from there. He'll tell me how funny I am, and I'll tell him how cute he is. Then he'll whisk me back to his apartment and put on a Miles Davis CD, and we'll make love that's hot and sweet like coca. Something changes in me when I'm in front of an audience. I scan the shadowed faces of the crowd and find the person with a frown that broadcasts the message, I'm determined not to enjoy myself. My mission is to make that person laugh. The moment that person cracks a smile, I know I've got it. Once the smile slips out, laughter is bound to follow. Sometimes a serious person just keeps frowning the whole time, and then I feel defeated. There were too many days when New York defeated me. I've come to San Francisco hoping for less defeat and more laughter. Also, more boys. Right after work, I go back to the clean break, this time with my laundry. The same cute guy is working... It's an intimate moment, handing him a trash bag filled with my dirty clothes. He says he thought I was funny the other day. His name is Casper. The friendly ghost, I ask. He rolls his eyes. I guess everyone says that. My uncle has ghosts. Lots of them, I say. They're all friendly. This morning I think one of them was checking me out in the shower. He smiles without showing any teeth, which seems patronizing and also makes him less cute. Sometimes I forget that for most people, realism can't be magical. I stop talking about the ghosts and compliment him on his t-shirt, another tight one that says, Danger, Men at Work, like a construction site. He says he made it himself and he smiles, this time with all his teeth sparkling and looks cuter by the second. He asks if I want to go out sometime. Cool, I say. I like San Francisco. Most of the ghosts have their own rooms, but Tomás shares Gilberto's bedroom. I don't think the ghosts sleep. I think Tomás just lies awake beside Uncle Gil all night long. I wonder if they still spoon with each other. Gil can see and hear the ghosts, but I don't think he can feel them. I wonder what it's like to be with someone when you can't feel their touch, can't taste their lips. You'd have to keep your eyes open the whole time to remind yourself you're making love. I ask Gil if he'll come see me at the next open mic. He says it's too hard on his back, plus he doesn't like to leave the ghosts home alone. He asks if I can do my act right here at the house, a private performance for him and the ghosts. Roberto and the ghosts rearrange the living room setting up mismatched chairs in four rows of seven. One of them brings down a desk lamp to use as a spotlight. I step into the light. The 28 chairs look empty except for the one in the second row where Gilberto is sitting. My routine about comical deaths might be insensitive for this audience, so instead I do all my best jokes about cheesy gay pickup lines. From the moment I start, Gilberto's arms are in the air, and he laughs that giant laugh of his that fills the room. I pause, listening for laughter I can't hear. I see, says Gilberto, clapping his hands. Verdad que sí. He gestures towards the empty chairs and says, Everybody is laughing because it's so true. I stumble through my next joke. I want to find the ghost with a frown on his face, the one that's buried in sadness, the one that will measure my success. But I'll never find him in those empty chairs. Caspar has one night off a week. He takes me out dancing and then back to his apartment. You can tell it's not a college dorm room because all the posters are in frames. This reminds me that Casper is four years older than me, which is sexy. Casper takes off all his clothes, and I can't help but think it, he's as white as a ghost. This makes me think of Uncle Gil, that I should call him so he doesn't worry. As I dial the number on my cell phone, Casper sucks on my nipple. This is distracting, plus it's hard to hear Roberto because any dream will do is playing on the piano in the background. I'll be home late, I tell him. Or maybe not at all. Bueno, says Gil. Just make sure you're using a parachute, okay, mijo? Okay, I say. Cuídate, tío. Casper says it's hot when I talk in Spanish, and he starts to go down on me. I hate it when guys say that, but I like him and he gives good head, so I'll talk a little Spanish, just to encourage. In the morning, Casper makes us pancakes. On the counter, he finds a note from his housemate saying we were very loud last night, and it kept him from sleeping. The note has lots of exclamation points and capital letters and underlines. Kesper says he wants to move out, but in the Bay Area it's so hard to find a decent place. I'm walking out the door with a 10-gallon trash bag filled with laundry when Gilberto asks, What is wrong with my washer and dryer that you are running around the city with all these bags of filthy clothes? There are two answers to this question. The first is that his washer and dryer are in the basement, which is dark and a bit grimy and almost always filled with ghosts watching old, sad movies from before there was color. Or, if they do have color, it's that cheap, grainy color that's missing half the rainbow. The ghosts watch the same movie again and again as a chorus line of handkerchiefs dab invisible tears. The second answer is that Gilberto's washer and dryer are not staffed by Casper. But I don't say those things. I say, I just need some air, and close the door behind me. Casper says he's not going to be working at the laundromat forever. Someday he'll have his own business, selling the funny t-shirts he designs. He sells them to friends and at festivals, and a friend of his has promised to make a website so he can sell them online too. We stay up all night brainstorming ideas for t-shirts. I spout one-liners like, These nipples are armed and dangerous. Then Casper sketches graphic design ideas on his laptop. He says I'm the first person he's ever met who can keep up with him, in terms of t-shirts. Someday, he says, we'll be co-owners of a successful business. I'll perform my comedy act in front of a packed audience, and Casper will have a booth by the door where he'll sell t-shirts to the mob of people who can't get enough of our cleverness. A lot of people have dreams, but Casper is cool because he invites the other person to be a part of them. In the sleepless morning, we're too tired to even have sex. We trudge through showers and cereal, and I head off to the restaurant, Casper to the laundromat. Working there is not so bad, he says, because while he's folding clothes he gets to do research, assessing the latest t-shirt fashions in people's dirty laundry. Gilberto is letting Gany meet in from the backyard, and I ask him if he wants to come with me to the March for Marriage downtown. He says he and the ghosts already have plans to play a game of hearts. Don't you care about our equal rights? I ask. Claro que sí, he says. I was an activist once in my day. But back then, no one even thought of marriage. We were too busy fighting for our lives. I meet up with Casper for the march. We hold hands. So what would you want your wedding to be like? Casper says, with a shy half-smile. Nothing pretentious, I say. Something fun. Casper agrees, and we start fantasizing about weddings. The pronouns slowly shift from mine to our. It'll be in a comedy club, not a church, and everyone will wear funny t-shirts with pictures of tuxes printed on them. There'll be a little ceremony and lots of laughter. Casper is naked except for a necklace of purple beads on thin black cord. I'm naked too. We're kissing, all wrapped up in each other's legs on a twin bed that's too small for two, trying to be quiet so as not to disturb the writer of notes of many exclamation points. This time, Casper whispers, he wants to feel his skin touching mine. He says he wants to have sex with me and not a piece of rubber. I smile, but look away. For a moment I imagine Gilberto beside us, wagging his finger at me as he sips a glass of gin. But then Casper is touching me, loving me, and Gilberto's image fades from my mind because Casper is taking up all the space in my imagination. Casper is right. It's amazing, the sensation of skin on skin. Gilberto says he's upset I'm not spending more time with him and the ghosts. He feels I'm using him just because he has a house in the gayest city in the world. I don't spend much time with Gilberto and the ghosts because I don't like Broadway show tunes, and I don't like old movies, and I don't like audiences I can't see or hear. But I just tell Gilberto he sounds like Grandma. Gilberto doesn't like Grandma, and doesn't like the idea he sounds like her. He frowns and puffs on his cigarette. The next weekend I bring Casper back to my uncle's place to avoid the cranky housemate. We're fucking on my bed when the chair at my desk topples over. I tell Casper it must be the wind. It doesn't bother me if the ghosts watch. I'm not modest, and even ghosts deserve a thrill every now and then. But then Gilberto barges in, arms in the air, and shouts, Daniel, Johnny, I told you to leave him alone. He shoos the ghosts out and tiptoes out of the room as if he had any hope of going unnoticed. Sorry, James, he whispers. Sorry, Sige, Sige. Casper sits up, his mouth hanging open, and says, Your uncle's a perv, man? I tell him Gilberto was just trying to stop the ghost from spying on us, but this only seems to upset him more. He puts on his clothes and leaves. Dio Gilberto is chopping vegetables in the kitchen when he says there are a lot of guys out there that just want to take advantage of me, and I need to be careful. I tell him I know how to take care of myself. He says that's not what he heard. He says that Daniel says he saw me having sex with Casper without a glove. He says that Johnny has corroborated this. Who the fuck are you? I say. You fucking hypocrite? You used to go cruising the bathhouses all the time. He drops a piece of plátano in the mortar and smashes it with the pestle. Verdad que sí, si, he says. I call Casper and tell him I'm sorry and that the thing with the ghosts is really a cultural difference thing. This makes him feel guilty. I tell him I can't wait to see him naked again. This makes him feel horny. We'll meet up on his next night off. Ganymede has barely eaten all week and spends all his time lying behind the couch. His skin is swollen where his legs meet his body. This is ridiculous, I say. He's really sick. You've got to take him to a vet, deal. Callate, James, he says, in a harsh tone of voice I almost never hear. He's on the phone for two hours, trying to find a veterinarian who will make house calls. The vet arrives at the door with a little backpack filled with medical supplies. She takes some samples for a biopsy and says she'll call Gilberto when she knows more. A few hours later, I'm in the kitchen getting a snack when the phone rings. Through the doorway, I can see Gilberto in the living room, closing his eyes and bracing himself before he picks up the phone. Yes, he says. He listens for a while and says, I understand, thank you. Gilberto eases himself down to the living room floor and cradles Ganymede in his arms, carefully supporting his neck as if he were a newborn baby. I think about going to him, saying something, but I can't think of anything to say. I turn away and pad upstairs to my room. Casper and I have spent all night dancing and talking and having sex three different ways. Now we're sleeping at his place, curled up together in bed. I get up and slip into the bathroom to take a piss. There's the sound of footsteps approaching, so I reach behind me to push the bathroom door shut. James? comes Casper's voice. Is that you? Yeah, I say. Don't shut me out, he says with a mock tone of hurt as he pushes the door open. I'll be out in a sec, I say still holding the door closed. It's silly to want privacy from someone who just went down on me, but I do. Let me in, he says. His tone is sharp, demanding. Okay, I say, and let go of the door. He comes in with a face that's angry for a moment, but then quickly turns into a smile. He unzips his fly and starts pissing too. He crosses his stream with mine. Like Ghostbusters, he says. Now we can defeat Gozer. I fake a smile but feel annoyed as I go to wash my hands. Ganymede is dead. Gil is sitting in his armchair smoking, an overflowing ashtray on the coffee table beside him. He's playing boleros on the stereo and is working on his second bottle of gin. I'm about to try to get him to come out with me, to go dancing to get his mind off it, but then he starts to cry, big heaving cries that are even bigger than his laughs. I never know what to do with crying people. I look around, wishing that a stool would turn itself over or a drink would float by, that a ghost would appear to comfort Gilberto. But the room is empty. I half-sit on the arm of the chair and put my arm around him. It'll be okay, I say. Gil just keeps crying. I rub his arm a bit, but it's awkward. I go to pour him a glass of water, because I know how to pour a glass of water. He thanks me and sips it, then chases it with a glass full of gin. He seems calmer now. I remember when we first got Ganymede, when he was a little perrito. Before when this house was haunted, he says, picking up his neglected cigarette and tapping away a long ash. Dios mio, this place was such a porqueria when we bought it. Everybody thought we were a bunch of locas, twenty-eight of us buying this old warehouse with holes in the floors and so many broken windows. We spent many years painting, fixing, arguing about where to put the statues and tapestries. Pero then, Gilberto stares off into space as he takes a long drag, His gaze seems fixed on something far away, more far away than any ghost could be. Daniel was the first one to get sick. Dios mio, he was such a tease. He could ask you to pass the salt in a way that was flirtatious. When we went to see a show, he'd dance in his seat when they did his favorite songs, De Digo. My heart died when I saw him in that hospital bed, so still. He wasn't really Daniel when he wasn't moving. Then he starts crying again, wiping tears away with his wrist in between sips and puffs. It'll be okay, tío, I say. No hay mal que por bien no venga, you know? Gilberto stabs his cigarette into the ashtray and violently rubs it into the pile. Did your father teach you that? What a bunch of mierda. If there is one thing I've learned, it's that the clouds are not having any silver linings. It's just mal y más mal as far as the eye can see. Gilberto is having trouble getting his lighter to spark for his next cigarette. Suddenly, the cat jumps onto his lap, and he grabs it by its fur, digging his nails into its skin. I hate the cat, he screeches. I hate the cat's skin. The cat shrieks and claws back at him, but Gilberto keeps digging into it. It slips away from him, leaving behind a few strands of fur in his hand. I take a few steps back, wondering if Uncle Gil hates my skin too, if he'll dig his fingers into me. Then he looks down at his hands, turning his palms face up, staring at them as if he's never seen them before. He cries again, but it's not the big, heaving sobs now. It's all tiny little cries, as if he ran out of tears a long time ago. I'm sorry, Tio. I'm really sorry. But at least they're still here. At least you still have the ghosts. Gilberto shakes his head as he rubs his eyes with his thumb and forefinger. You still are not having any ghosts of your own. When you do, he will understand. It is never the same. I go over to him and take a cigarette from his pack even though I hate the taste of menthols. The sun outside is fading, but neither of us gets up to turn on the lights. I sit quietly with my uncle, smoking in the shadows of the dusk. I wake up with a throbbing pain in my forehead. I touch my hand to my face and realize I'm sweating. My neck is swollen on either side of my Adam's apple. A friend of mine told me something once about how HIV starts. Something about swollen lymph nodes and flu-like symptoms. But I'm not the type to freak out about things like that. Flu-like symptoms are usually just the flu. I feel like being social, but Casper's at work, and Gilberto is sleeping in with a hangover. I'm the only living, walking person in the house. Still groggy, I go down to the kitchen to make a cup of tea. I grab a lemon out of the fridge, and when I turn back around, my mug has a spoon in it that I didn't put there. I taste the tea, and the sweetness is so startling that I knock over the bag of Domino's sugar. I'm feeling sick, I say to the air. Just leave me alone, okay guys? An invisible finger pushes through the sugar, like a plow cutting through the snow. The glass tabletop shows through the streaks, forming the letters that spell out. Play with us. Something about the space between the sugar makes the ghosts seem terrifying in a way they never have before. I run upstairs four steps at a time and lock myself in my room, hoping none of them are inside with me. Caspar and I are at his place again, having sex on the two small bed. I feel him inside me, flesh on flesh, no walls between us. I ask him to stop. Why, yes, not stopping? Because, I say, pulling apart from him, I'm afraid of ghosts he laughs. (laughs) Oh, come on, James, he says. Enough with the ghosts. Anyway, I thought you said they were friendly. They're friendly, I say, but also sad. I don't want to be one. Don't be so macabre, man, Casper says. We're too young for that stuff. I don't believe in ghosts. You know what happens after you die? Nothing. Nothing but oblivion. I nod. It occurs to me I don't believe in oblivion. Casper looks at me and says, What's gotten into you? Nothing, I say, looking away from him. I just think maybe we need some boundaries. Casper's head jerks up as if he suddenly heard a fire alarm in the next room. Boundaries? He says. You want boundaries? I'll give you a boundary. Get the fuck out of my apartment. Hold on a sec, I say. I didn't mean it like that. He picks up my clothes and throws them at me. The cold buckle of my belt stings as it hits my bare chest. I say, Casper, I love you, but I don't think he even hears me. I wander around Casper's neighborhood, trying to call his cell phone, but there's no answer. I go into the first bar I find and drink three beers in a row. I call again, and he's changed his voicemail greeting to say, If this is James, I think we need some boundaries for our phone calls, like, by not having them. Shocked. I walk away from the bar and leave one more message, apologizing, begging him to call me back. I plop down at the bar stool and the bartender says, Five bucks. I give him a confused look and he says, You still owe me five bucks for the last lager. I realize I left my wallet on the bar and now it's gone. Someone must have taken it while I was on the phone. After I search for ten minutes, the bartender shakes his head at me and tells me to scram. It's cold outside and I wish I had my jacket. It's impossible to know how many layers to wear in San Francisco. I take out my cell phone and dial. James? Answers Gilberto. ¿Qué pasa? Why are you calling so late? Casper dumped me, I say. And I lost my wallet, and nobody's ever going to love me, and I'm stranded in Oakland, and can you come get me, tío? Ay, mijo, I'm so sorry, pero how would I even get there? What about the Corolla in the back, I say. That old thing says Gil. I hear his muffled voice talking to someone else. Finally, he says, Stay where you are. An hour later, the Corolla pulls up to the side of the road, and Gilberto gets out of the passenger side. Dios mio! You must be freezing, he says. Get in, get in. He climbs into the back of the car with me. Vamos, ya, he says, waving at the empty front seat. The blinker light comes on and the steering wheel turns of its own accord. The car pulls onto the road. I'm sorry it took so much time. Gil says, "It took many tries to get the Toyota starting." I'm just glad you came, I say. Gaberta rubs my shoulder and says, so "¿Qué pasó, mijo?" I don't even know, I say, trying not to cry. All of a sudden he lost it and kicked me out. How can he do this when we've gotten so close these past six weeks? Gaberta looks away from me and flashes a smile at the driver's seat. Even though I can't see him, I can tell the ghost is smiling back. Hey, I say, don't laugh at me. We're not laughing, says Gil, just remembering. The waiting room of the clinic is so small it must be packed with ghosts. One of them, probably Daniel, knocks some papers off the front desk. The receptionist looks at the papers and frowns, then gets up to close the window, thinking it's the wind. It was sweet for the ghosts to come. It's hard for them to leave the house, but when Gilberto comes out, they're able to follow. Dio Gilberto is sitting beside me, his arm around my shoulder. He put it there right after I came back to the waiting room. I guess he could see I was almost sick with fear. I let my head slip back so my neck rests against his arm, which feels surprisingly solid, like the branch of an old majestic tree. It's a rapid test, so I only have to wait a half hour, but the waiting doesn't feel very rapid. It's hard to breathe, like the air can't find its way to my lungs. I imagine scenarios and try to decide which one feels the most real, the most likely it will happen. I picture myself walking out of the little counseling room with a smile on my face and a thumbs up sign. The ghosts get so excited they almost knock over the desk when they cheer. Then we all go to the Dew Drop Inn around the corner and the bartender thinks Gilberto and I are crazy to order 29 drinks for just two people. Then I think about the alternative, and I can't picture anything at all, because I'm afraid of how real it might feel. I'm still in the waiting room, waiting with Tio Gilberto and the 27 ghosts the room is getting stuffy, since the reception has shut the window. It's getting harder to breathe. But then, some unseen force, I wonder which one, pushes the window back up, and a gust of fresh air blows into the room. It doesn't take away the fear, or even give me hope. But the coolness of the air makes it easier to breathe.
0: That's our story this week. Thanks for listening. I know calling it haunting would be a pun, but this one really lingered with me. One thing I'd like to acknowledge is that our reader for this one, Brian Lieberman, also known as Doom, the moderator of our own occultish pseudopod forum, recorded this for us at the very last minute. He had about a week to do so between his finals and New Year's, so let me get my obligatory head-on-over-to-the-forums out of the way right now and say please do drop by forum.escapeartist.net and tell Brian how awesome his reading was. Because... Otherwise, you would have been stuck with me doing a Spanish accent, which I think we're all grateful I didn't have to do. My Klingon, on the other hand... Eh. Okay, let's move to feedback. Podcastle, episode 78, Sarah Edwards, the Tiny Man and Caroline. This was a steampunky kind of tale brought to you by Mr. Scott Andrews, the man who lives beneath ceaseless skies, courtesy of our cool other free genre magazines month. Tim Tyler compared Tiny Man's JB to the dog from our recent Nine Sundays in a Row, saying they ended up making pretty much the same choice, staying with an abusive monster because it was their only option for helping someone they'd come to care about. And what haunts me is how wretchedly alone they both were. No friends, no allies, nobody on their side except themselves. It's no fun being Frodo if you don't even have a Sam. Unblinking said, I hardly really felt for JB's dilemma. He had to choose between a crappy life and a really crappy life, but in the end, he at least was able to do what he could for the little girl, even though she won't remember him. And Ms. Mac said, This was amazing. I enjoyed this, and while it might be a bit complicated for the younger of my daughters, my elder kiddo will love it. Seeing why people would want to leave fairy? Good good. Good to know you're indoctrinating your young, Miss Mac. That's all we have for this week. Let's see, I already mentioned the forums, so now I'm feeling kind of lost. Anne's disembodied voice will be around in a moment to give you the specifics, but if you feel someone tugging at your t-shirt or jacket, that's not her. Run away now. Or, hey, don't. Thanks for listening, amigos. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back here next week with a new story from Cat Rambo. So please familiarize yourself with our emergency exits and make sure you're wearing your parachute. We'll see you all next week.
1: And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site.
0: Jonathan Swift said, every man desires to live long, but no man wishes to be old.